I want to welcome everyone to the Common Reason Sabbath School. My name is Russell. I'm going to be filling in today for Tim Jennings. For those who are wondering, Tim is about 90% recovered from his kidney stone. He um, had it successfully removed two Fridays ago and then had to have a stent removed yesterday. He is uh, mostly recovered. He sends his best and his thanks for thoughts and prayers for his uh, recovery. I want to welcome those who are here for Alumni Weekend. Welcome the visitors and those who are listening online. Um, I want to begin with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for another day, uh, this one day in seven that you've given us. Thank you for the Sabbath and for what it represents. Uh, Please continue to enlighten us and sharpen our minds. Uh, Send the Holy Spirit with us today as we discuss um, the, the children of Israel and their experiences and the rebellion that they uh, endured. Uh, please continue to transform our characters so when you come again, we may see you for who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. We're studying lesson number seven in uh, our quarterly People on the Move, Book of Numbers. The lesson uh, is entitled Power Struggle. Someone read the memory text for Sabbath lessons. This is from Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and a high spirit before a fall. Pride goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before a fall. Have any of you in your personal experiences, um, live this. I think we all have. We're going to look at a, an interesting experience that the children of Israel dealt with um, after they had been turned back from the promised land. God had told them that this first generation will die in the desert and had sent them back which beginning which would end up uh, eventually being 40 years of just wandering around in the desert. Can you imagine 40 years wandering in the wilderness? Just kind of moving one place to another, setting up camp, and with how many people? Estimate, what, two and a half, three million people? Uh, plus livestock? This must have really graded on, on the, the folks that, um, the disbelievers and, and those who... Um, were afraid to go into Canaan and wanted the wanted God to send the spies in. And we're talking about the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. A little background, Korah was from a prominent Levite family, and uh, according to patriarchs and prophets, uh, he was one of Moses' cousins. So there's actually a blood relation to Moses himself. He indulged in, in a uh, self-aggrandizing thought process, pride, And he considered that it wasn't actually God that was leading the people. Never mind the big, the big cloud that's uh, that's uh, guiding them by day and shielding them by night. Never mind the Shekinah glory uh, between the the cherubim and the ark. Never mind God's presence settling over the sanctuary. He blamed Moses for uh, leading them away from the promised land and making them wander in the desert. And he indulged these thoughts to himself, first of all. Finally, he 
had he had finally so convinced himself that he was in the right that he uh, gave some subtle utterance to friends and relatives, and they supported him. So he grew bolder. Does this sound familiar at any time in in, in history? Does this sound this this whole theme sound familiar? Repetition. Interesting. This is a great, great little microdrama of what happened in heaven. This is the same thing that Lucifer did. And the parallels here, and we'll examine some of them in a little bit. The parallels here are fascinating to me. But let's go ahead. Someone read the Numbers sixteen one through three. This is this is when the rebellion has finally come to a head, and uh, Korah is confronting. Moses, and listen carefully, to, read carefully what he says. Someone read, yeah, number 16, 1 through 3. Now Korah, the son of Bethar, the son of Pehoth, the son of Levi, and Dathan, and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and on the son of Peleth, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with certain of the children of Israel, 250 princes of the assembly, famous in the congregation, men of renown. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and said unto them, Ye take too much upon you, seeing all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Wherefore, then lift you up yourselves above the congregation of the Lord. Okay. Any thoughts on this passage? What's going on here? It's a power grab. Certainly, it's a rebellion. It's a they're attempting to grab power from Moses. But look at look at the accusations. This is this is one of the this is one of the great parallels between Lucifer's rebellion, continued rebellion, and here were the the Cordathan and Abiram and the two hundred fifty princes of Israel. What are they doing, essentially? They're tearing down the reputation of Moses and Aaron. Okay. In the back. Uh, they're arguing power. They want to have some power that is uh, controlled by Moses and Aaron. Okay, they want power. And how are they going about that? Are they telling the truth? Well, they're There's... All the congregation holy, but you're the ones with the problems. They're spreading lies about the character and the nature and the character of Moses and Aaron. This sound familiar? Okay, this is how Lucifer convinced a third of the angels to follow him into rebellion, simply by spreading lies about the character of Christ, the character of God himself. They are essentially, and because they're so convinced they're in the right, what they're doing is they're they're transferring or projecting their own character flaws onto that of Moses and Aaron. Okay, they're they're accusing Moses and Aaron of being the power hungry ones. Meanwhile, they're they're wanting to defend the nation of Israel. Okay, yeah, go back and read, you know, patriarchs and prophets uh, were, were um, Ellen White early early chapter. I think it's chapter two or three when uh, she outlines the fall in heaven. There's Loads and loads of parallels. Just happen to have it with me. Uh, any other thoughts on this, uh, what's going on here? Any, uh, 
of any other lies that they, they tell. Yes? That um, most men were setting themselves up about when God chose them as leaders. Correct. Another great parallel. Korah was was a, of the family of Levi, so he was he was associated with the practices and the ministry surrounding the sanctuary and the temple. Okay, he had a, a certain job to do with the temple. I don't know what it was, but his family was associated with the temple. He desired the jobs that were given by God to Aaron's sons. He desired to do uh, to be part of the priesthood. Okay. Anybody see any parallels here? Lucifer wanted the position of Christ. What is Christ often described as? Our high priest. Are some wheels turning here? I hope so. Because we got 50 minutes. <laughs> um, someone read the... The first paragraph in Monday's lesson is our Moses' reaction to this attack. And it contains an excerpt from Patriarchs and Prophets about... Um, she devotes an entire chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets to this rebellion. And is well worth the read. Moses' reaction to this attack reveals just how frustrated he must have felt at such twisted and distorted charges, especially by those who should have known better. They were of the number who delivered Moses into the mount and beheld the divine glory. Expressing great interest in the prosperity of the people, they first whispered their discontent to one another and then to the leading men of the their insinuations were so readily received that they ventured still further, and at last they really believed themselves to be actuated by zeal for God. Consider that these guys had, had actually been part of the, a select part of the group. You know, 70 out of 3 million that had actually had gone up the mountain and had, had seen God's glory. And they still rejected the idea that God was leading Israel. And then the problem was with Moses and Aaron. Okay? This, this should give us some indication as to the insidious nature of, of sin itself. It so blinds the sinner and it so destroys the mental capacity and faculties within the sinner that if persisted in long enough, no amount of light from the Holy Spirit can reach can reach in a darkened mind. Persistent rejection of the Holy Spirit, persisting in rebellion, you eventually get to the point where things are hopeless. Okay? And this is not this is not a punishment from God. This is not a punitive judgment. It's a natural consequence. It has to be. It's a result of the choices that have been made. Someone take numbers sixteen and verses twelve through fourteen. Moses had to call him Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, who said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us out of the land that floweth with milk and honey to kill us in the except that except thou make thyself altogether a prince over us? Moreover, thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey, or given us inheritance of vineyards. Wilt thou put the eyes out of these men? Will we not come up? Okay, so Moses... I don't know whether he was personally hurt or offended by this. Um, I think he, I think by now his character has been so transformed into the likeness of God that he 
he wanted to try everything within his power to help the the rebel to help those who are rebelling see the error of their ways and to win them back to trust and, and confidence in God. He's calling Dathan and Abiram to come meet with him so that he can discuss you know what the what the problem is and where this is coming from, and they won't even meet with him. Read again how they how they uh, describe Egypt. Is it a small thing that thou hast brought us up out of the land that floweth with honey to kill us in the wilderness? This is another great example of how sin darkens the mind. Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for what four generations before their exodus, before God uh, broke the yoke of Pharaoh upon the Israelites. <clears throat> They were building cities. They were making brick all day long, from sunup to sundown. And toward the end, they were having to gather their own straw for brick. Their Egyptian slave masters were ruthless. Uh, many of them died while they were working, and it was left there to rot. And this is described as a land of milk and honey. How can that be? Uh, how, can, how can a mind become so twisted that they describe slavery as paradise and yet this is we see that we still see the same thing happening today don't we this idea that the rebels have defined egypt as a land flowing with milk and honey this reveals where their hearts truly are and therefore what happened god gave them up this is what will happen in the future to those who are content with the sinful life on earth god will give them up so one thing I noticed when I was reading um, this week is that it's amazing to me that despite all of the really big things that God did in intervention, emergency kind of measures, you know, people were, you know, died, actually died before this uprising. Despite all of those things that happened and the great loss of life and, and all of the big ways that God had acted, still another rebellion came up. Mm-hmm. I just thought about that, and I thought about how that is just evidence that the emergency measures that God has used are only stopgap methods. <laughs> I mean, it, all it does is just put the lid on things for a short period of time, giving people a longer opportunity to come to their senses. But it doesn't cure anything. The only real way that, that rebellion is quenched is by God revealing himself to the human mind and the rebellion melts away. But it doesn't happen by might and power, just like the Bible says. Well said. In fact, this little episode that we're looking at here is a microcosm of that whole thing. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see here shortly that Cordathan and Byram are swallowed by the earth. 250 princes are killed by the, quote, fire of the Lord. And the next day, the rest of the congregation is still grumbling. It's still in rebellion. That's human nature. Yes, it is. That's human, sinful human nature. And, and the only way to change it is from the inside. The words that these guys are speaking remind me a lot of humanistic ethics that say the uh, results of an action or a set of actions is what justifies that action or set of actions. Um, those, that camp of ethics is known as teleologists, 
lot of us would know it as the ends justify the means. And I think that while it is probably a misrepresentation to say that Egypt was a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, there's no doubt that being out in the desert can't have been fun either. Um, especially when they had been looking forward to the promises of Moses that they were going to arrive at the promised land. Um, and so from that perspective, it's very easy to understand their position when they say, Moses, what are you doing? Your actions are not justified because the results have not been good. Um, and I think that's a real watershed difference that we have to make as Christians when we say, are we going to justify our actions or set of actions by the results or by the revealed will of God? Well said. Any thoughts, comments? Part of the thing I was noticing is how much the Israelites resented having a God that was beyond their control. We see a fascinating fascinating picture here about what happens to sinful human beings who are so persistent in sin, and, and when that is pointed out to them, when holiness is revealed to them, they want to reject it. And they want to reject it completely and, and totally. Okay? Moses reproved them, reproved the children of Israel for their sinfulness at the borders of Canaan. The children of Israel requested the spies. Okay? It, it wasn't God's idea that they pick ten spies and go spy the land out. That was the children of Israel. That was their insecurities. That was their disbelief. And then when eight of the spies came back and said, we can't do this. The people are huge. They're enormous. Well, we got no chance. We're not trained for war. We can't do it. Which also goes back to a promise that God made them long before. If you read Exodus, God said, I will send the hornet and the fear of me ahead of you into the land. You won't have to lift a finger. They didn't believe that either. So God gave them what they wanted. He gave them up. He said, okay, if you don't want to, you don't want to go to the land of Canaan, back to the, back to the wilderness. So when the people got confronted with their, the, when their, their sinfulness was, bang, confronted them right in their foreheads, they rebelled. But they, they rebelled against Moses because he was God's chosen leader. Just like the, the Pharisees rebelled against Christ because Christ came and pointed out their sinfulness. They rebelled against Christ who was God's chosen leader. Yes? I think a good example is where God said of David, he's a man after my own heart, mainly because when sin was pointed out, he didn't justify it. David, yes, you're right. When he That's what we should do, what they should have done. Admit it and face it, not justify. I think that's a great observation. And, and I agree with you. That is why God called David a man after his own heart. Because David was a seeker of truth. David saw that the need, he had a need for a savior. And he was, he was teachable. He was willing to learn. Okay? You know, adultery and murder for hire is not, are not godlike characteristics. But when, these, when the prophet Nathan pointed these out to David, he said, you're right, I have sinned. 
And in order to make atonement for that sin, what did he do? How did David make atonement for his sin? He redeemed her. He he married Bathsheba. Exactly. That's how that's how he did it. You guys ever thought about that? He made it legal. In that in that in that culture, a, a woman who had become pregnant out of wedlock would been would have been outcast. She would not have had any any status in society. She would not have been able to own property. She would have had nothing. So he he married her. He made her an heir. Okay, Monday's lesson. It's interesting to note that uh, Moses' reaction to the, to the rebellion was there was a lot of sorrow, and and he he wanted to you know intercede on their behalf. Okay, this is this is a great this is a great example to not only us uh, living today, but to the. To the entire universe back then of the transforming care, the transforming power of the Holy Spirit in human lives. Uh, a few years previous, 40 years previous, Moses had killed an Egyptian slave master because he was beating the Hebrews and he, he killed them in order because he thought that the Hebrews would see this and make him their leader. The Hebrews didn't. So God spent 40 years working on Moses' character with the sheep and later, and then when his character had been transformed to the point where Moses would rather have his own name removed from the book of life than for anything to happen to the children of Israel, he was ready to lead. And we continue to see this time and time again where Moses intercedes with God. God. God was ready to wipe these folks out. God was ready to get rid of the entire congregation not just the rebels but the entire congregation and make a, Mo- a nation of Moses if Korah, Dathan and Abiram had been in charge and God had said I'm going to wipe out the congregation what do you think they would have been make a great nation out of you what would their reaction have been well yeah, I got to agree with you Lord I think, that's, uh, I think that's a good plan Okay. They would not have been as selfless as Moses and Aaron were. Yes? It's interesting human nature, Al. We're more, we'd rather hang on and secure to something that's, that is our comfort level and what we know mm-hmm. rather than embrace change. And I think what you see here is they rather hang on to their slavery in their situation than embrace any kind of change in the unknown of what's going to happen in front of us. And that, that's, that's happened over history of human nature. Yep. Absolutely. Lot's wife. Um, someone read number 16, verses 15 through 35. It's a bit of a long passage. Then Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, nor have I hurt one of them. And Moses said to Korah, Tomorrow you and all your company be present before the Lord, you and they, as well as Aaron. Let each take his censer and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord. Two hundred and fifty censers, both you and Aaron, each with his censer. So every man took his censer, put fire in it, laid incense on it, and stood at the door of the tabernacle of meeting with Moses and Aaron. 
And Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Then they fell on their faces and said, O God, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin and you be angry with all the congregation? So the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the congregation, saying, Get away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart now from the tents of these wicked men. Touch nothing of theirs, lest you be consumed in all their sins. So they got away from around the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, with their wives, their sons, and their little children. And Moses said, By this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, for I have not done them of my own will. If these men die naturally like all men, or if they are visited by the common fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord creates a new thing, and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them, and they go down alive into the pit, then you will understand that these men have rejected the Lord. Now it came to pass, as he finished speaking all these words, that the ground split apart under them, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the men with Korah, with all their goods. So they and all those with them went down alive into the pit. The earth closed over them, and they perished from among the assembly. Then all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up also. And a fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering incense. Thank you. This is a bit dramatic. No? <laughs> Any uh, thoughts or observations on what, uh, what had happened here? I don't think the still small voice would have done much. <laughs> I'm sure the still small voice had already been there. Not only had the still small voice been there, but the loud thundering uh, and the fire on the mountain, uh, and you know the like I said earlier, Cordathan and Abiram had actually seen, beheld the glory of God and lived. They had seen numerous miracles wrought. They had seen, you know both the loud and the quiet that God had to offer, and they, and they remained unconvinced. So God gave them up. It's interesting also to note that the same fire that killed the 250 princes, the Hebrew word is identical to the fire that came out from the Lord that killed uh, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, when they offered, quote, unauthorized fire before the altar. This is the same fire that killed Nadab and Abihu and yet did not consume them. 
They were dragged, look and read Leviticus 10, 1 through 5. They were dragged out by their tunics. So this is an interesting fire that consumes a sinner and yet leaves their clothes unsinged. Something to think about. I have a good analogy for that. Yes, please. We all have cars and have batteries on them, and corrosion gets on those terminals. And uh, you can pour Coca-Cola on those terminals, and it'll take care of that. Well, once it's gone, it's gone. You pour Coca-Cola on there, and there's no more to consume. And I think God's trying to take care of the corrosion on us, so that when he comes and pours that parsley illustration, the Coca-Cola, uh, it affect us. Okay. There's, a, there's another good analogy. There are numerous texts that states that the, the world is in darkness, gross, gross darkness covered the people, and numerous texts that refer to Christ as the light of the world, and Christians are supposed to be the light of the world. How many of you have ever been in a cave? Have you been deep enough in a cave and turned the flashlight off and you see absolutely no light whatsoever? I mean, you cannot see your hand in front of your face. It's a darkness that you can taste. Is that oppressive? Okay. Imagine spending a life in that cave, and then you're brought out at 12 o'clock noon in the middle of July. What would that feel like? It would be torment. Your your thought would be, put me back in the cave, please. Or pray for the rocks and trees to fall on you. However, if you're brought out at 5 in the morning... Sunrise comes up, light appears gradually. By the time you get to 12 noon, it's tolerable, even lovely. Okay? Uh, I think it is... Someone correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's Malachi. It says that the sun, S-U-N, of righteousness is rising with healing in its, in its rays. It says wings in the Bible, but the original Hebrew means the things that extend out from the sun. So it could also be translated as rays, healing in its rays. Okay, this is what this is what Christ is doing in, in each of our lives, or what he's trying to do in each of our lives. He's trying to get us used to the sunlight. He's trying to impart a little bit more light into our lives, into our hearts and minds, and transform us and heal us, so that when we when we see the light at high noon, we'll embrace it. When Moses came off the mountain, the people hit their face. Oh, can't stand that bright light. Excellent. This is this is a great great point. When he came from the presence of God, his face was glowing in the reflected glory of God. It wasn't even God Himself. It was the reflected glory of God, and the, their minds were so darkened that they asked Him to veil His face. His face wasn't blistered. It wasn't burned. Okay. This is this is an interesting type of light. An interesting type of fire. Yes, in the back. I find it interesting that after this miracle, which you'd have to call ground opening up and the work of the Lord. No question. That immediately they then turn around and blame Moses for this. And he gets the blame for something that he could not have accomplished by himself. Correct. And they turn on him. And so you could wonder whether this uh, whole event really enhanced 
the position of Moses or made it tougher for him to control the children of Israel. Okay, we're going to look at that here just shortly, like as in right now. Tuesday's lesson talks about memorials. I'm not going to go too deeply into this, but basically what uh, Moses is, I mean, Aaron's son was com- commanded to hammer the censers of the 250 princes uh, into a bronze covering for the altar as a reminder to the children of Israel, a memorial, as it were, to the children of Israel of the rebellion. And this was done. And the following day, rebellion persisted. We're going to look at that right now. Someone read Numbers 16, 41 through 50. Next day, all the community of the Israelites raised complaints against Moses and Aaron and taxed them with causing the death of some of the Lord's people. As they gathered against Moses and Aaron, they turned towards the tent of the presence and saw the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of the presence, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and said, Stand well clear of this community so that in a single instant I may make an end of them. Then they prostrated themselves, and Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer, put the fire from the altar in it, set incense on it, and go with it quickly to the assembled community to make expiation for them. Wrath has gone forth already from the presence of the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took his censer, as Moses had said, ran into the midst of the assembly, and found that the plague had begun among the people. He put incense on the censer and made expiation for the people, standing between the dead and the living, and the plague stopped. 14,700 died of it. In addition to those who had died for the offense of Korah, when Aaron came back to Moses at the entrance to the tent of the presence, the plague had stopped. Okay, there are several ways to look at this. Uh, some of them are healthy and some of them are not healthy. Anyone think of some of the unhealthy ways to look at the look at this example here? Man came in and stopped God's power from hurting the people. Okay, that, that could be unhealthy. Well, Anything else? That's what kept Moses out of the promised land. When he took his power, when he made the claim of... Uh, Bringing water from the stone—that's what kept him out of the promised land. All right. Any other thoughts? Yes. Aaron loved the people better than God Himself did, so that they were good enough to go out there and do what they could to stop an angry God from hurting them. Okay. Everybody hear that? An, un- an unhealthy way of looking at this is that Moses and Aaron loved the people more than God did. They intervened to prevent a wrathful God from destroying the nation of Israel. Yes, sir. I think the comment made earlier of when Moses struck the rock and said, we did this for you, that's very different from when he told Aaron to run into the middle of the crowd. Uh, this, is, this is a case of Moses and Aaron loving the people and trying to save the people from, their own, from themselves versus saying, look what we've done for you. Oh, I, I agree. I don't think that's a healthy way of looking at this. My question was, are there some unhealthy ways of looking at this that will twist this story so that we get a mistaken picture of the character of God? They thought it has to be appeased by offering. Excellent. Thank you. I was waiting on that one. God needs appeasement. God needs 
someone standing between God and the sinner, uh, pleading, God, please don't hurt them. Yes. I think that's what that's what's at the heart of the matter. The comment this gentleman made over here about this gentleman's comment, I think he misunderstood what he was trying to say. And I think that's the heart of the matter with all of it, is that the people of Israel misunderstood what God was all about. I, clearly they did. Yes. Uh, when you go back to get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once, uh, you could take that as... If you don't do what I want, God, God wants, he's going to zap you. And I think a lot of people do it that way. Great point, and this is a nice segue. This is an excerpt from the chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets on the Rebellion of Korah. Manifestation of the divine glory was seen in the cloud above the tabernacle, and a voice from the cloud spoke to Moses and Aaron, Get you up from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a, in a moment. The guilt of sin did not rest on Moses, and hence he did not fear. Process that one for a minute. And did not hasten away and leave the congregation to Paris. Moses ling- perished, excuse me, Moses lingered in this fearful crisis, manifesting the true shepherd's interest for the flock of his care. He pleaded the wrath of God might not utterly destroy the people of his choice. By his intercession, he, just stay- he stayed the arm of vengeance that a full end might not be made of the disobedient, rebellious Israel. One of the parallels that uh, was, was rolling over in my mind when I was studying for this is that the insidiousness of sin, the insidiousness of rebellion itself, is analogous to the plague that, that had begun the children of Israel. And it would have consumed all of the children of Israel if there had not been intervention and intercession. Okay, just like the plague of sin would have consumed mankind if there had not been intervention and intercession. Okay, Aaron, functioning as the high priest, made intercession. He interceded with the plague, quote, of sin of the children of Israel. Just like Christ, as our our priest, is interceding with us to stop the plague of sin to stop the, the ravages of the nature of sin. I think this is a healthy way of looking at this. The unhealthy way is already, one of the unhealthy ways has already been mentioned, that God has to be pled with in order to cease his wrath, in order to, to stop from destroying humanity. And if God wasn't pled with, then he would have electrocuted us all long before now. Yes? A way of thinking of it just kind of came to my mind, and it's actually... If it can be thought this way, I think it's actually a beautiful testimony of God's character. Because what was going on in this whole situation was the people didn't trust Moses and Aaron. They said, you guys are not appointed by God. You're just usurping authority. You're trying to tell us what to do. And God was trying to show the people that these are the leaders he appointed them. These are people that they can trust. And he actually allowed himself to be thought of as evil and as trying to kill everybody. In order to, he it was a plan that I could, I can see that he he wanted Aaron to go into the people and to actually save them. He wanted the people to see that Aaron was there for their own good, allowing himself to be thought of as evil. I think it's a great point. And by not trusting Moses and Aaron, the instruments that God had chosen, the folk, the people, the children of Israel were indeed not trusting in God Himself. Yes, sir. If 
Moses did not, inter- I'm sorry, Aaron did not intercede, is it safe to say that the plague would have wiped out everyone? Anybody? The thought I've had on this is that uh, God gave these threatenings, an or else deal. And I think part of it was to test Moses. And Moses stood up under that and pled for his people. And that would be graphically show to the people that Moses was on their side. Plus, Moses had seen it. It was, it was a test. And he uh, welled up on the test by his selfless defense of his, in a sense, as a test. I think God already knew the character of Moses by that time. And whether, whether, he, not, whether he felt compelled to test it or not, I don't know. To the people. He not only did it reveal to the children of Israel, but it revealed to the onlooking universe. This is the transforming power of my my character, of the Holy Spirit. Back to back to this man's question about um, whether or not all the children of Israel would have been destroyed if Mo- if Aaron had not, Moses and Aaron had not made intercession. Any, any thoughts? Would they have been destroyed? Well, he did promise that they were going to make a great nation of, of Israel if he wiped everybody out. Um, that promise was. Would die. So I, I think the answer is that, that no. I mean, I guess I struggle with this whole thing because it's hard to reconcile what we're reading here with the, the God of the New Testament, the Testament and the law of love. And I agree with this gentleman. I think the only explanation that satisfies me is that God was testing Moses. And, and I mean, he tested Abraham. He knew Abraham's character. He still continued to test people. And, and and that, that makes sense to me and it makes me feel much better about this God. Because there's a number of instances here where we're seeing Moses intervene with a wrathful God. Now, that's Moses writing this, so that's his perspective. But if that's truly the God we serve, that's not the God we see in the New Testament. Isn't it? Consider what would have happened if the rebellion had been allowed to take its course. Okay, all of the children of Israel would have been led astray. And God, in order to preserve that bloodline that the Savior would ultimately come through, he had to intervene in spots throughout history from from Adam and Eve on up to the birth of Christ. God had to intervene by putting some of his children to sleep. Okay? He did not kill anyone. God has not killed one person on this earth yet. Nor do I believe will he. He's put, he's put countless of his children to sleep. He put them in time out. They, but those children will all be resurrected from the grave with the same character that they went in the grave with. Okay, the flood, 185,000 Assyrians, the 14,000 Israelites here, the 250 princes, Nadab and Abihu, Koradath and Abiram, etc., etc. Every one of those people will be resurrected with the same character they went in the grave with. And our our definition of, of death, you know, all the people in the flood died as far as we're concerned, but they will one day be resurrected. And we don't know if we don't know if there's some people that were killed in the flood that will be in heaven. There very well may be. There may be a little girl who believed Noah and said, I, I wanna go I don't want to get on the ark, and she was prevented from doing so by her parents. We don't know that. We don't know whether any of those people, the 185,000 Syrians, they, there may have been some in that camp that were there conscripted and forced to, forced to fight, forced to be there. They may have known of the God of Israel and feared the God of Israel. They may be in heaven as well. 
I don't know that. Um, but God had to intervene in order to keep the channel and the pathway available for his Messiah, for the Son of God to come. And it got down so narrow that the, at the flood, there was only one righteous man on earth. That was Noah. So, uh, I struggled, I struggled with viewing a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament. Once Christ was born, God didn't have to intervene to keep the, the pathway open for uh, the Messiah. The Messiah was already there. The Messiah was there revealing the, the character and nature that God had had all along. And there were various people in the Old Testament who, who understood God for who he really was, not as some being to be terrified of. They, understand, they understood that he was a loving being. And a loving being does what's best in the other person's interest all the time. So, for the greater good, God had to put some of his people to, to rest. Yes? I've always struggled with the same idea. Yep. But I have come to, I think, understand it in a different light than what we have presented. In fact, Tim here a few weeks ago um, explained something to us that I never understood. That when the Bible, when it talks about in there, that only two went into the promised land. And that's the way I've always understood it, that Caleb and Joshua was the only two of all the children of Israel from 20 years and older went into the promised land. But Tim brought out the point that the Levites went into the promised land. Is it possible that here that the Levites, only one Levite, was involved in this complaint? But the greater complaint was against God, not against Moses and Aaron. That was the greater complaint. And so God, because of the children of Israel, having said, hey, we don't want you to talk to us. We don't want to deal with you. We want to deal with Moses and Aaron. That God now has to use the drastic examples and drastic measures to get their attention and say, look, wait a minute. It wasn't Moses and Aaron. You think it is, but it's not. It's me that's bringing you through this. It's me that's leading you. You think it's Moses and Aaron, but it's not. I don't think there's any question that the people were indirectly rebelling against God. And they they wanted to blame Moses and Aaron for God's leadership. But it was because of a choice that they had made earlier that God couldn't show them or change their thinking except through drastic measures. Uh, I was just reading, uh, rereading uh, the phrase where Moses tells Aaron, take the censer and put fire in it from the altar. So Aaron was basically taking God to intercede from God's wrath. Okay, and Romans is quite clear on what God's wrath is. Okay, God's wrath in the Old Testament and God's wrath today are the same. There's no difference. God's wrath is letting people go to their own choices, letting them, giving them up. Okay, read it. Romans 1, 18, 20, 24. It's there. Because they did not retain the knowledge of God, God gave them up. One last thing. One more example of the divine priesthood that belonged to Aaron and his family was uh, this example that... Um, God had 
the chief princes of all 12 of the tribes bring their staff, you know, a, a piece of wood cut at both ends, just a dead, dry piece of wood, brought it to the, uh, brought to the temple. And the following day, it was Aaron's staff that had not only grown leaves and buds, but it actually produced fruit. It had almonds on it. Think about that. Think about seeing that. That a, a dead piece of wood has now produced fruit. Okay, this was the icing on the cake here. Finally, God finally revealing to the children of Israel, Aaron and his family are the priests. They represent me. Get over it. Any final thoughts before we wrap up? Hans Tim has told us um, that we should eat almonds every day because they're so <laughs> such a good nutritional resource for the brain. Yeah, antioxidants and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Think about that. All right. Thank you for your input. Uh, let's close with prayer. Gracious Father, I want to thank you for being such a patient God and continuing to intervene and intercede in our hearts and minds. Uh, thank you for sending your son to fully reveal your character of love and truth and freedom. Uh, and we ask for greater measure of light, greater measure of truth, uh, so that when you come again, we may see you face to face for who you really are. In Jesus' name, amen. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Hope to see you back next week.